Welcome back to the OWASP podcast. It's Matt DeSaro again. In this episode, I host Neil Matatal to talk about going beyond 2FA as he relates lessons on account security learned from places like Twitter and GitHub. This is another episode with some good nuggets of wisdom and some sound advice for those writing new APIs or keeping existing ones running. It's obvious that Neil has not only spent some time doing some very solid engineering work, but he's learned a few things that he's willing to share. I hope you enjoy it. All right, it's Matt Tassaro again, and I'm here with Neil Matatal, and we're gonna talk about account security beyond 2FA. I, I happened to catch video, I guess you should say, he did with the DevSlop, the OWASP DevSlop project. And I thought it was pretty cool. There's a couple great points listed in that or brought out in that. And I wanted to bring him on and have him talk to a, a hopefully a different audience. So, Neil, it's great to have you. Can you give everybody a little bit of a summary or the Reader's Digest version of your background, your history? What got you to where you are today? Sure. So I come from an engineering background specifically, and I sort of stumbled into security on accident. Turns out I really enjoyed doing it, but I always kind of held on to that engineering background. So... Wherever I was throughout my entire career, I've had the opportunity to both do security and engineering in my role from hardening frameworks to paving paths to coming up with standards and things like that. Uh, and had the opportunity to work at small companies, small startups, big startups, and I'm currently at a nonprofit. And all the different areas have all brought their own challenges, own use cases, own opportunities, own user bases. And I think it speaks to the level of interest that you can have in this sort of stuff in the ever-changing landscape. Well, that's definitely true. It's funny. I was talking to a junior security person who was briefly, or he hadn't had a long time in the field, let's say. And that was one of his first lessons that he learned is when he moved from company one to company two, he realized like, holy cow, all that stuff that I thought was canon at company two is not even a thing at company one or and vice versa. It is very interesting how radically different each place you work is over over a course of a career. Yeah, not so, every XSS is the same, right? <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yes. Oh, oh don't get me started. <laughs> the context, that was the one thing I we're gonna I'm gonna derail slightly, but like understanding the context of where a vulnerability hits, it gets lost on a lot of uh, new people in the field because they're very excited because, hey, I found a SQL injection. I'm like, yes, and it's the thing that restocks the the drinks in the the food court. Like, it's kind of bad if you can bust it, but it like no one's going to die versus, I don't know, I do SQL injection. I have everyone's SSN and home address, like very different situation. Your dev slop talk about it was titled uh, Account Security Beyond 2FA, and I'll drop links to the deck and the recording as well on the podcast. But what what motivated you to have this, to create that talk and do the thing? I thought it was very interesting, and I wonder what drove the decision to, to do that work. So I had done this work previously at Twitter, but it was a shorter period, so I didn't really have a good opportunity to tell like a longer story. Like I was there when they adopted 2FA, but like, and a few other things, but it didn't really have the full story, but... When I was at GitHub, I spent a very long time there. And so I got to see the sort of creation of this whole idea of account security to the point where the entire concept was handed off to a non-security team, to an engineering team. Just to explain the culture at the time that it started, uh, lots of things were kind of unowned or sort of there's this idea that you could just sort of work on whatever you wanted. There had been sort of a loose 
move towards having teams and formal structuring management, but it was still very much like, okay, if some things are owned now, what are the things we should focus on? And we felt like our, like AppSec was in a good place. Like AppSec has never solved, but like we had automation in place. We had taken a few sharp edges away from the framework. We felt that developer awareness was sufficient. We felt that we had a good enough culture that people would want to work with us instead of around us. So long story short, like investing in that further was not going to give great returns where we had this big hole of, okay, for account security at GitHub, your options are to enable two-factor. And that was it. Yeah, we had a few other things, like you might get an email alert if something happened. There was an audit log. It was not very comprehensive, but it was there. Nobody would really look at it. And we had some support tooling that would help people figure out situations and get back into their account if it's legitimate or whatnot. But we had no telemetry on how many accounts were being taken over. We had people who would write into us and say, hey, this was suspicious. So we could maybe get some data there. But to think that an account that was taken over went unnoticed, never happened, is the chances are zero. The first step was kind of like getting a bunch of telemetry in place to understand the problem. And then it was taking it from there. What can we do to see what's going on and provide things beyond two-factor authentication, provide things that maybe don't require opting in. Because if you look at the data, like people don't opt in. There's a, a, I can't remember his name. I think it's like Connor or something. He maintains a Google spreadsheet of people who will publicly report to FA statistics. And if you ask an average person, engineer, who's aware of 2FA, like what would the 2FA enrollment be at GitHub? And if I told them that it was like 12%, they'd be like, oh my goodness, I thought it would be so much higher. My reaction was getting to 12% was really, really hard. And most people never make it to that point. You look at this list and it's like 5%, 3%. Obviously some environments allow a much broader use, but like you see people talk about breaches and a lot of times it's like there was no 2FA. So people say, oh, if only there was 2FA, there would be no breach. But 2FA with SMS and TOTP is both fishable. I don't like bringing up SIM swapping because it's not really relevant to most people's threat models, but there is that as well. TOTP things depend on seed. So there's like a SQL. There's, there's lots of problems that just throwing 2FA at the problem just adds a step to the problem, but doesn't solve anything whatsoever as long as we still have fishable credentials and whatnot. Yeah, you, you remind me of the, a similar situation back when CICD was starting to be a thing. And people were like, well, why don't you just turn on CICD? I'm like, it's not like a light switch. You can't just flip this on and magic it into existence. And 2FA, even like you said, GitHub had a checkbox away for making it happen. And only 12% of the user base checked the box. So yeah, there, there's obviously some downsides to 2FA. Yeah, and to expand on your point, like just turn on CICD, I think Alex Mullen brought up a point. There was a period of time where everyone had that on their resume. But then when you ask them, what did you actually do? They couldn't tell the story about how they took the CICD results and massaged it into a format that people could understand, people could respond to, it could create a self-service situation. This is a kind of, you know, parallel we're drawing here. Like you need to go beyond the surface and focus on the people who maybe aren't benefiting from what you've just done. Yeah, don't just set up Jenkins and basically move your make file into Jenkins and call it CICD. There's a lot more to it. Don't point app scan at a URL and throw a PDF over the wall. You know, like these are all kind of <laughs> things that we've done in the past that we can't keep on doing just because they were a thing we did. Yeah, and one other point that came out in your talk was the, the distinction between targeted and mass attacks. And I thought that was a very good distinction to make 
and how positioning yourself to fight those or have controls against those is a very different story, even though they're all off, you know, author authentication attacks. Yeah, I don't think it's a, a defeatist attitude to take. I think it's definitely a very realist attitude to take. Though. We're not going to be able to stop a determined attacker with enough resources from doing just about anything they want over time with enough luck or chance or whatnot. And that's why I hinted that I don't like bringing up sim swapping because it's just not a thing that's going to matter to most people. And I think using that as a reason not to use SMS2FA, I think is counterproductive to our mission. But I think I'm getting off topic there. So you can't stop a target attack no matter what. And if you accept that premise, at least loosely, why do we spend so much time and attention in that bucket? Why are we spending 80% of our time for 1% of attacks when we should be focusing way more on the other side of the thing who's getting just no attention whatsoever in a lot of cases. And so these mass accounts, these mass account takeovers are unsophisticated, incredibly basic, often script kitty level sophistication, incredibly easy to detect, not subtle in any way, ramming through the front door, banging on it with every hammer you have. And then it works because we're so focused on like the other door or something. I was surprised when I used to do pen testing, how you could basically fuzz an, a login page like overnight and, and <laughs> no one noticed Not like this has got to be blatant as heck, right? To have repeated failures for a login, either if you do it, I mean, there's two different ways, right? You can keep the login username the same and bounce a bunch of password against it or invert that and do change username, same password. But either way you do it, right? I was always blown away at how I could let these things run for hours with zero, um, like I never got banned. I never, you know, nothing ever happened. And it was shocking, right? Such an easy, loud uh, occurrence. I'm I was doing this as part of a pen test, so I was supposed to be doing it. But it still tried to, it still surprised me how easy it was to do that and just have it go unnoticed. And I think that brings up like an interesting point of the evolution of our story as well, too. Because, yeah, like the first thing you want to think of is like an individual trying to like guess your password. Like that doesn't really scale for an automated attack. So like you have an individual script trying a bunch of passwords against a single account. So maybe you can block that account, maybe block that IP. But nowadays it's like pretty easy to get 60,000 IPs to throw entire list of dumped credentials from a third party site because credential stuffing is like the biggest threat to people who don't have 2FA at this point because everyone reuses passwords, everyone's passwords are bad. And it's really easy to get a hold of these lists and just spend $15 in AWS to see how many accounts you can pop. Originally GitHub did have like username-based and IP-based logins, but towards the end of our system, we actually got rid of the IP-based logins, IP-based rate limits, because we had enough confidence in our account security story that it would be like practically impossible to really do an automated account mass takeover at that point. Now our Attacks in between automated, easy, and nation-state infinite resources, do they exist? Yes. But are they our biggest threat? Not when people can easily retry credential dumps without much we can do, really. Yeah, there's really, from a, except for the controls that you talk about in the talk, there's really not much you can do to stop someone from trying, right? Like, they're always going to try. You put a, an answering port on the internet and things will poke it. That's just par for the course. I used to call that kind of like the, the background radiation of the internet, right? 
you have 22 listening on the internet and oh, everybody and their brother's going to try. Well, not everybody and their brother, but you're going to get lots of traffic that tries to brute force into your SSH connection, let's say, right? No, no big deal. No, well, no big surprise, I should say. It kind of goes from like the first stage is you're getting random internet garbage and it makes your application throw errors because you're, you weren't expecting like a number to be a string or something. And then stage two is okay. You can throw the internet at us, but like we're still scared of like attacks and like laughs and stuff. And then there's a third phase where you're just like, I have enough confidence in these systems that like I can move on. And that's kind of a good feeling. That is a good feeling. So how did you, what were the things that you thought were useful in your transition from checkbox to FA kind of the early days to your final, we can feel like at least as far as mass account takeover, we're in a good place. We have put that to bed as much as you feasibly can. The, the lowest hanging fruit, I think, was just better notifications and better audit logging. So this was not an opt-in feature. This is a very passive thing. So if certain events on your account take place that you might not be that you might want to be aware of. So if it changes the way you are able to sign into your account or access resources, anything that changes the authorization of your account, we would send an email. We'd add an audit log entry. The auto log is both visible to the user, but also a more enhanced auto log is visible to support. And that all feeds into instant response, account takeover detection type stuff. Uh, so it really helps everyone there. The second one I mentioned earlier was just like adding the telemetry. Like where are users signing in from? Are they signing in from the same device? Do they typically sign in from the same set of locations, same set of IP addresses? What are their user patterns like? And that involved filtering out a lot of garbage data because you can easily skew things with just a really noisy bot here or just an account that changes IPs every time. Anyways, we got to a point where we were like, okay, when we see these massive spikes of both attempts and successful sign-ins, which we suspect are automated account takeover attempts that are currently being successful, what does that look like? How does that compare to a normal day? And it's like, oh, lots of these are coming from nations that people have never been in a very broad sort of classification one that's not great when you compare the size of the united states to some countries in europe for example crossing a border in north america is a lot different than crossing a border in europe for example some people might work in a different country they live in so there's some things you have to account for making sure that you're accounting for those use cases but it was like okay why don't we just let people know that they signed in from a different country that they've never signed in before this was actually inspired i think by a tweet I think it was actually Scott Helmet sent it because Facebook had implemented this. And I was like, this is an easy feature to do. Like we could definitely do this. Twitter had done something similar. They just sort of did it a little bit differently. It's not really important, but it's not a hard thing to do. Like you have this data, you have these events, you just have to make it searchable. You have to make it fast. And so now is again, this was a passive thing. We didn't stop anything. We just notified people. We created an autolog event. We brought it to their attention and lots of people would be like, yeah, that was not me please reset your password. And all of a sudden it's like, you know, every time there'd be a wave of these successful logins correlated with a successful bump or a bump in unrecognized countries things, there'd be a bump in password reset soon afterwards because people were taking action on that wasn't me. And thankfully after this whole process, we didn't seem to annoy people enough where they just marked us as spam as far as I know. So keeping that in mind was very important, but by far the most crucial thing, and all of this has been leading up to it, and this is not a special sauce. This was the core of the presentation I give. This is a feature that everybody is familiar with. But if the sign-in looks suspicious for any reason, let's send an OTP code to your email. Let's have you enter that code into the browser to at least confirm that not only do you have the person's username and password, but you have access to their email. Now, some people would say, 
well, a lot of times you can use the email to reset the password and whatnot. And in that case, yes, like the whole chain of security is broken. If you lost account, you control your email, you're in big trouble in a lot of ways. There's not much we can do about that. So we said, is this a known device? Have we seen this device before? We drop a cookie when you sign in, stays there forever, persists throughout sign-ins. Multiple users can use the same device, et cetera, et cetera. But if you enter a username and password from a device we didn't recognize that came from an IP address we've never seen before, for example, we put you through the flow. And that was definitely one of the hardest projects I've done, like on a technical level, straightforward, very easy. On a human level, lots of people had had lapsed email addresses. Lots of people would have deliverability issues. This was yet another way to trigger an email to account that may or may not be used. It was a huge support burden for a good like six months or whatever. But once we got into that steady state where support level was acceptable, people were generally okay with this. We'd still receive hate mail all the time. People are very upset about <laughs> this. But when you see like hundreds of thousand people a, a day doing it, but like one or two write in, that seems like a good ratio. And when you look at like the number of sign-ins that would result in a challenge of this kind, and knowing that you have knobs to tweak that number up and down, knowing to where your acceptable level is, you can just sit there and watch the credential stuffing attacks happen, but like not seeing the graphs change in any way because you've not allowed any of those events to go through. And eventually yeah, the credential stuffing attacks just stopped, to be honest. Like they just stopped. Well, attackers, if nothing else, are pragmatic. And if you make it harder, they're just going to go somewhere else where it's easier. I mean, that's just... I, I mean, the whole, like, I put on my running shoes and outrun you and the bear eats you kind of thing, right? It's that kind of quaint story, but that really is true. As a pen tester, I can remember systems that I beat my head against for a day or two and went, okay, well, forget this. I'm moving on to the next one because this one is, I'm getting nowhere and I want to get somewhere. So one That's, of the things uh, that came out of your, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Sorry, the perfect segue, and I'll just make this part super quick because of course, yeah. as soon as we shut off the front end to the website, the attack moved to the API. And so we couldn't exactly introduce an email-based flow and an API flow. So we instead just stopped accepting passwords through the API. And similarly, the Git interface still accepted passwords. We didn't actually see the attack shift to Git because it's a little more complicated than you know a curl script going to an API endpoint. But the attack absolutely shifted like almost immediately. That was to me the probably the thing that really caught me in your presentation. It's one of those things that is both surprising and in retrospect painfully obvious that. The number of controls that you've just talked about that you had around a browser or a normal kind of flow browser, mobile, what have you, versus an API, which is made to very quickly respond, made to be programmatic. Generally, you don't have humans talking to APIs unless they're just trying to figure out how to use them for their program. So this thing that's meant to not interact with humans is getting a username and password, right? What are the controls? You can't, like you said, you can't really 2FA an API call. Like that doesn't work. My Python script doesn't have a mobile phone that it can go check and get a, a SMS pass or, or verification code at. So that was fascinating to me that uh, GitHub was at the point with their attacks and particularly mass attacks that they just were like, we're done with letting you log into the API. Use your browser, get a token and make it happen that way. Now, was that was that a how much of a political struggle was that? And what did you have enough evidence to where it just sort of happened? Because I. There, I mean, as a user, I like the idea of making a little request quick and easy with the username and password and I get a token and I hand that off to my thing and off it goes versus having to log in and grab a token and copy and paste and whatever I have to do to make that work, right? A little more clickiness. 
in the second option, how politically internally was that to get that done? Politically, we'll talk about both the security aspect and then like the engineering resources aspect, because they are definitely different. Politically, it was easy because we were like, hey, because we import compromised password data, we can see that the kind of passwords that are being used in these attacks, hey, very clearly credential stuffing attacks went from the website and they stopped. We knew they were going to the API after this. We now have proof. Okay, so we saw the attack shift. Boom, security problem solved. Engineering problem much, much bigger. You know, APIs have a variety of clients, including GitHub Desktop, including Unity, including that random Android app, including the Eclipse 2.0 that's still running on someone's desktop that uses Java 1.3. Like these are all things that are allowed to connect to our API. And while we did kind of cut off support by like requiring things like TLS 1.2, we still had a plethora of clients that even if they were doing everything right, still needed to make drastic changes. In a lot of cases where you used to put a password, you could just put a personal access token and that was Mm. okay. But there were also some APIs we had to get rid of entirely. If you have an API that requires a password, but you're not going to let passwords through anymore, what happens to that API endpoint? (laughs) Specifically, this was an API endpoint to generate tokens, which is a horrible idea to exist in the first place. And I was so happy that we got rid of that, but that broke a lot of stuff that broke a lot of people who were trying to do it the right way, but wanted to make it easier for people. At the same time, we similar to the API, what do you do? How does an API call authenticate with OAuth? Like you have to go through a dance at some point. So we had to introduce the OAuth device flow as well. So that things like the GitHub CLI could continue to work. Because again, the GitHub CLI was like, man, passwords are super convenient. So like, Let's just support those and lots of documentation on the internet that was copied and pasted everywhere. was like easiest way, username, password. So we had to make changes to how we did OAuth. We had to make changes to the client apps we own. I submitted a pull request against an Android mobile app to help them along. And it was never merged, unfortunately. I wanted to say I was an Android developer, but maybe one day I'll get there. You'll Um, get there. so, So technically it was a huge problem. And then... The support burden along the road was non-trivial as well. So I should have brought that as well. Like throughout this entire story, we had to partner with our support team very closely because they knew the problem better than we did. Actually, we just found the data that kind of supported what they said without changing things very much. And rarely did we go against them, but we always had to think, is this going to be a case where engineers are going to be responding to support tickets again? Because that's where we were before. Thankfully, everything went smoothly. There was not even a blip. There was no hate mail. Like wow. we didn't see a drop in traffic. Like it just worked. We had also been like notifying people over email for a year, but I don't know that had any effect because the only thing that actually saw dra- graphs change at all was when we did our brownouts. So temporary service disruptions intentionally was the only time we'd ever see traffic change. Interesting. Um, wow. That, that's, yeah. And yeah, it's, I mean, notification, even over a year, you, you would think that would work, but there's always some percentage that just they're busy, they didn't see it, they don't care, whatever. It just, it, it's going to fail. One of the things I'm getting too from your sort of transition and how particularly engineering wise, that was a big lift was that this is a difference between dealing with air quote legacy systems versus greenfield, right? If you designed that API to only take tokens that you got through a web interface, 
you, like none of that engineering would have to happen, right? You pre-solved that problem. But the fact that that you did have this existing mechanism meant, meant your transition was much more interesting. And I, to be honest, like most of the really interesting engineering challenges I've solved are dealing with these situations like, OMG, I'm backed into a corner and I have to get out and I'm going to step on some amount of paint. How do I make it to where I step on the least amount of paint to get out of the situation? Because that's where you really have to be creative. If you're lucky enough to have Greenfield, you're great. Of course, do it right the first time, no big deal. But I always found the challenges of what I used to say impolitely, you got handed a crap sandwich and I need to garnish it and make it look palatable because I can't <laughs> like... I'm in a business and we make money and we have to continue serving customers, but we also have to handle this kind of ugly, wordy thing that's come up. And how do we make that work? Yeah, all software over a certain age becomes legacy to some degree, but certainly I think anyone designing a new API at this point would know not to accept passwords, or at least that's something I would get noticed pretty early on. So had GitHub been built at the moment we started this whole effort, what would I have done that would have been helpful? Besides not accepting passwords, obviously. <laughs> uh, GitHub did not require email validation until very late in its lifespan. When you sign up with an email address, we didn't require that you verify it before you could do certain things. And unfortunately, that was an intentional product decision. Unfortunately, from this account security point of view. Fortunate from their point of view as well was GitHub was very like, if you want to be anonymous, that is 100% supported. We didn't have a real name policy. We didn't validate that you gave us a legitimate email address. You could have signed up with a Proton Mail. We, we just didn't care because we wanted to support that anonymous workflow. But like that was a decision that led to a tremendous amount of pain later as, okay, you can't sign in until you enter this code that we sent to your email address that you never had and that we never acquired. Now, over time, I want to say like maybe two, three years before this whole thing started, they started making limited requirements. So like you couldn't create a repo unless you verified it. This is a bad example, but there would be like little parts of the website you couldn't do unless you verified. And over time it became more and more, all of a sudden you couldn't comment on an issue until you had a verified email address. And then eventually it became to, yeah, you couldn't use a site unless you verified an email. This feature was the final nail in that project there. But lots of people hadn't used GitHub since before they started requiring verified email addresses. So they're coming back to their account and they're like, you never forced me to verify my email and now you're requiring that I use an email to sign in. I am literally locked out of my account. And what do we do here? By the way, I used bob at example.com, which I don't own and doesn't even have SMT running on it. So uh, what do we do? I signed up with my university email. My former employer forced me to use their email. I had a typo in my email and I didn't know until now. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Man, um, it, this has been fantastic. I would encourage people to watch the full Monty. I liked how your sort of storyline presentation that you did in DevSlop. We didn't have the same amount of time window to do it in. So I, I wanted to encourage people to, if they want to hear more, because I thought it was really fascinating. The whole evolution of the thinking and different things you tried and how you measured success was very interesting to me. I quite liked how you did that. But I do have one final thing that, uh, except for the last episode, I was neglectful and I forgot to do this, but I have some cards here, the Basecamp card company, and I'm going to shuffle them, which I'm doing right now, which you can't see because we're not on video, we're audio, if you can hear it. But I'm going to randomly pull a card from the deck and ask Neil a question here. So here it goes. 
What is something that you wish more people knew about you? I can drive a forklift. Uh, nice. <laughs> I, I spent a lot of time working in warehouses. And even though I never had like official training or anything, I just kind of used the forklifts from here and there. And eventually I was just using them all the time. And uh, it's a lot of fun. I got to say, like working in a warehouse isn't a lot of fun, but like driving this little device and like moving all the things around and stacking all the things up top and loading and unloading trucks and this little vehicle where you're not breaking your back doing labor is a lot of fun. So I don't know that a lot of people have had that experience or have the same feelings towards it, but I've not met anyone else who's had that skill yet. So uh -oh. I may halfway answer your problem of not having met somebody. I put myself through college working at Lowe's in the plumbing department. And we had those, not really, they were sort of like forklift-like things where you could stand in them and they would raise up so you could get into the giant shelving. And I remember being by myself in the plumbing department and somebody wanted a, God help me, a cast iron tub, which was on the top of this giant green shelving. And I had to run that thing as high as it would go and then manhandle this multi-hundred pound tub onto the back of the thing and then lower it down. And I, I was so sure I was going to drop it and kill somebody, but I didn't. Like, no one died. It was a happy ending. But man, that was <laughs> that was some like, can I really like fit two people on this thing? Because I'm moving this. And, and by the way, who's the brainchild who put the freaking cast iron tub on the highest possible shelf. I would like to talk to them. That was not cool. <laughs> There's a person trying to show off their forklift skills. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, they just made me sweat a lot, unfortunately, or fortunately, I should say nothing, nothing bad happened. Well, awesome. This has been super fun. I appreciate you being on the podcast and I hope people do go out and check out the fuller version of your conversation about 2FA and how to make systems that have to take input from lots of people much more rugged. Thanks for having me. Yep, take care. I'd like to thank No Name Security for making it possible for me to record this episode. No Name is a complete and proactive API security platform that protects APIs in real time and detects vulnerabilities and misconfigurations before they can be exploited. NoName is an out-of-band solution that integrates with your existing infrastructure to provide deeper visibility and security. Please give them a look.